0: Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. I'm glad we can have this time together. Today we are beginning a new series of lessons using the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be looking at how Mark portrays Jesus as Lord and today's lesson comes from Mark chapter 4 verses 21 through 34. Mark is portraying Jesus as the Lord of Truth. But before we begin the lesson Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us together, this time to study your word and to learn from you. We ask for your blessings upon this and that you would be glorified in what's done in your name. Amen. If you visit CIA headquarters, etched on the wall of the main lobby, you find these words, Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, this is a verse from the Bible. It's a quote from Jesus, John eight thirty two. Now, Jesus is emphasizing the importance of knowing the truth. What we believe is important. It influences our actions. It shapes our lives. And today's lesson from Mark chapter 4, Jesus is teaching his disciples about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. There are essential truths about this kingdom that the disciples need to know. The disciples' misunderstanding of the kingdom, it would prevent them from realizing Christ's intent to establish His church. And today, our misconceptions about the kingdom of heaven prevent really the full expression of the kingdom in our lives. It keeps us from living the full kingdom life that we could. Jesus has come as the Lord of Truth, specifically to teach us the realities of this kingdom of heaven. When we look at the world around us, we see a world that has been given over to Satan. It's been ceded to his control, at least for the moment. Satan is described as the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 6:12). We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the high place, heavenly places. Hebrews 2:14 says that through death he, referring to Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, Satan's kingdom has been in control of this world for a long time. But the point of the gospel, the good news, the news announced by both John the Baptist and Jesus himself, the kingdom of heaven is here. It is near. In Luke 4, Jesus announces to his home crowd at Nazareth, the year of the Lord's favor is here. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. But where is this kingdom? There don't seem to be a lot of signs of this new reality. There were those who were still suffering from sickness and disease those still possessed by demons, many still living on the brink of poverty, all of them under the thumb of a corrupt religious system, under the power of the oppression of the Roman army. John Piper describes this by writing, So the kingdom has come, according to Matthew chapter 12 and Luke chapter 17, and the coming of the kingdom is still future, according to Luke chapter 19. And this is puzzling. It threw the Pharisees into confusion. It took John the Baptist off guard. It caused one crowd to want to throw Jesus off a cliff and another crowd to want to make Him king. It baffled Pilate when Jesus was on trial. It left the apostles confused and hopeless between Good Friday and Easter. Now, behind this confusion was what Jesus called the mystery or the secret of the kingdom. The arrival of the kingdom in a preliminary way in advance of the final consummation when all the enemies were defeated, all sin and satanic power and sickness and suffering would be gone forever. The mystery, as George Ladd puts it, is fulfillment without consummation. Fulfillment of the kingdom is here, but consummation of the kingdom is not. Many kingdom blessings can be experienced today today. Many are reserved for the consummation and coming of Jesus. Now, Jesus knew that it was crucial for the disciples to understand the true nature of the kingdom. If they kept on with their mistaken ideas, their ideas of an earthly kingdom where they would rule alongside Jesus, they were going to be crushed by what would happen soon. When Jesus is arrested and tried and crucified, And then, even though He's resurrected, He ascends into heaven, leaving the disciples behind. So, in today's lesson, we find Jesus attracting opposition from the Pharisees and the other members of the religious establishment. But He is also healing many. He's casting out demons. He's attracting crowds of followers. He withdraws from the crowds, but there are so many that they follow Him, and He actually is crowded into the Lake of Galilee. Jesus has to teach them while sitting in a boat. Now, this situation attracts so much attention, Jesus' family actually comes to get Him. They feel like they need to take Jesus under control, that Jesus was endangering Himself. Now, Jesus knows the crowd is following Him for all the wrong reasons. And He knows that His disciples also have their wrong reasons for following. They have their expectations of Jesus as the Messiah. But it's important that Jesus get across to them what the kingdom of heaven is really like. In this section, Jesus gives three parables. The parable of the sower the parable of the sown seed, and the parable of the mustard seed. And all three of these fit together around a common theme. The expectations of the crowd and the disciples were growing by the day. The crowd saw Jesus as the answer to all of their problems. No more disease, no more hunger, no more demons, no more Romans. The disciples saw a chance to Get in on the ground floor of a new empire, a new kingdom. Jesus, of course, would be the ruler, but they would be directly underneath Him, ruling this new kingdom. Now, Jesus knew these expectations would never be met. He knew that the crowds would turn on Him. The crowd that's one day shouting, Hosanna, the next day shouting, Crucify Him. And Jesus knew that unless the disciples realized the truths of the kingdom they would leave as well. When life on earth kept on as it always had, when the people were still poor, still sick, still hungry, still under the thumb of the Romans, especially when Jesus had been resurrected and gone into heaven, the questions would set in. Where is the kingdom that was promised? Satan's kingdom looks to be alive and well and still in control of this world where is the new kingdom of heaven that's been initiated and so jesus begins to teach the crowds and the disciples and he begins with the parable of the sower now we're not studying that specifically in today's lesson but you remember the the parable jesus speaks of a farmer who sows seed on four different types of soil and he has varying results some of the seed never grows Some grows but has shallow roots and soon wilts. Some grows but is then choked out by thorns. But you have some that grows and produces a crop. Now, when we look at this, what stands out to us, three-fourths of the sown seed is wasted. It never produces a crop. Only one-fourth produces a crop. But what a harvest it produces up to a hundred times what was sown. Jesus is teaching this when the crowds are flocking to Him. But He wants them to realize the majority of people will never accept the kingdom of heaven. They are not going to embrace Jesus' teachings. They're not going to be part of that narrow way. Now, Jesus teaches the disciples using parables, and this produces a problem for them. They don't understand why. And so Jesus tells them, he says, The secret of the kingdom has been given to you, but to those on the outside I teach in parables, so that, and then he quotes from Isaiah, that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Now, you can take this to mean that Jesus is, Uh, is teaching in parables because he's trying to hide the truth, that he wants only the disciples to understand. That he doesn't really want the crowds. He wants them to continue to be outside the kingdom. This is the idea of an in-crowd and an out-crowd, the chosen and those who aren't. Uh, The idea of a spiritual elite who have special knowledge and insight. But this is not what Jesus meant. This was not why He taught in parables. Now, we know this because uh, it goes against everything we know about uh, God the Father and Christ the Savior. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3, 9 the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Matthew 9:13. Jesus says, For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And Ezekiel 18:32. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. So we can see from this that Jesus wanted the crowds to understand. Parables were riddle stories in which Jesus hid profound secrets in brief, often unmundane-sounding metaphors. Now, this is a description given by John Piper. But, parables are there to help us understand if we are paying attention. They are told to illustrate or to teach. Now, In a parable, the point is not stated directly. The point or the the process of the parable is to force the listener to come to the truth himself, uh, to to illustrate a point that's being made. And all of these parables were spoken. They weren't written. The point Jesus is making would have to be fairly obvious. You know, it's not a written text that you can go back over and pour over looking at small details. So a a parable is not a puzzle. It's not meant to hide or to obfuscate. The point is expressed, but because it's not directly stated, those who heard the parable could, if they wanted to, refuse to acknowledge the point. They could purposely profess that they were confused, refusing to see what was being taught. And this would be especially true if it was something that they didn't want to believe in the first place. So Jesus taught in parables to those on the outside so that they might see but not perceive. Jesus is not saying he's deliberately trying to trick or confuse them. What he is saying is they have to want to see the point. What these people are doing is intentionally blinding themselves, refusing to recognize the truth. Jesus teaches in parables to restrain himself. He presents the truth in a way that respects our freedom of choice. We choose whether we want to believe or whether we want to reject the truth. He doesn't hammer us over the head with this truth. The the awful truth that we see in Scripture is God's Word is going to save some and it's going to harden some. You think of what happens when you heat clay, and when you heat, wax. When you heat a clay pot, it hardens and becomes brittle. When you heat a wax candle, it melts and softens. And this is what happens with the Word of God. For some people, when they hear it, their hearts are melted and they repent. When other people hear it, their hearts are hardened and they rebel. So, Jesus wants the disciples to understand this. And so, He gives them... Uh, an example, an analogy here. Now, Jesus knows the disciples will have an almost instinctive tendency to misunderstand why he teaches in parables. They will jump to the conclusion that because Jesus is teaching them directly, they are part of the in crowd, the spiritually elite, those with inside knowledge, inside information. So, Jesus gives them an illustration. He says, "Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is meant to be hidden or for whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. Let everyone who has ears to hear let them hear. Now Jesus' point is obvious here. How foolish would it be to go to all the trouble of obtaining a lamp, uh, lighting the lamp, bringing it into a dark room, and then deliberately covering the lamp so that the light would not shine out. This would defeat the whole purpose of having a lamp in the first place. Lamps exist so that we can see what's hidden in the dark. God sent Jesus into this world as the light of the world, And He did this for one reason. God wants what is hidden to be disclosed. He wants what is concealed to be brought into the open. God wants everyone to have access to the light. And so Jesus is making it clear to His disciples. He's not speaking in parables in order to deliberately keep some in the dark. God wants everyone walking in the light. There are no have and have nots among those uh, that Christ wants to reach. 1 Corinthians 1, 19 and 20 says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, was not yes and no, but in Him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Christ came to be God's yes, the answer for all, not just a chosen few. Now, Jesus doesn't stop here. He goes on to warn the disciples. Verses 24 and 25. Consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. There are consequences to having the light. Once you know the truth, how you respond will produce specific consequences. Jesus is telling them, your response to the light will determine the amount of light that you continue to receive. Those who respond positively, who embrace the light, they are given more. Those who reject the light, who turn away, even what they know uh, will cause them to become blind. So, the light that Jesus brings is a great blessing. This cannot be emphasized enough but it carries with it responsibility. Now, Jesus is expounding here on a universal principle. Life is a dynamic process. Life is never static. It never stands still. You are either advancing or you're declining. Now, we see this in a lot of different areas of life. Uh, The pianist who practices and rehearses every day, they're getting better and better. The one who stops practicing, soon he will find himself unable to do the things that he used to do so easily. When you speak a foreign language and you speak it every day, your fluency, your understanding grows. But when you stop, after a while, your vocabulary, your skills become limited. And the same principle applies here to spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. When we are obedient, when we're walking in the light, when we're practicing what Christ is showing us, then we are growing in righteousness. But when we neglect to act upon what we know, we don't stay in the same place. We begin to drift away from Christ. So Jesus is warning them, your position in the kingdom, it's not a ticket to the inner circle. It's not so that you can enjoy lording it over all of those beneath you. Instead, it's a responsibility to use the light that you've received To live out the values of the kingdom. And so the takeaway for us today. God intends for everyone to be brought into the kingdom. To experience Christ as the light of this world. He wants everyone to live out this new reality. If there are areas of darkness. It's not God's intent to keep them. It's because we are deliberately refusing to see the truth. To walk in that light. The fact is. We can have as much of God's truth as we want. We can be as spiritually mature as we want to be. We can live as close to God as we please. There are no spiritually elite, you know, those who've just been blessed with some kind of supernatural saintliness. We have uh, the decision in how this is going to happen in our lives. God intends for everyone to be a full member of His kingdom. He intends for His kingdom to actively be at work in us. And if this is not the reality in our lives, it's not God's fault. It's our fault. Now, Jesus has been teaching both the crowds and the disciples. The kingdom of heaven is here. And He's just finished explaining to the disciples that the kingdom is open to all. But He knows that they haven't grasped yet what the kingdom really is. When they do understand it, when they they don't receive the kingdom that uh, they are expecting, doubts are going to set in. Remember, they expected Jesus to set up an earthly kingdom with them as his trusted lieutenants. They would be sitting at his right hand while he ruled. In fact, in Matthew 19, Peter asked Jesus, he says, What about us? We've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, When the Son of Man sits on the glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Jesus needs for them to understand what this is going to involve. He is not talking here about an earthly kingdom, Uh, He is not going to leave them in a world where they rule. Instead, when He leaves, the Romans will still be in charge the religious establishment that crucified Jesus, they are still in power. And so you can see why the disciples might ask, is the kingdom of heaven a true reality in this world? And so Jesus needed the disciples to understand, no matter what it looks like, the kingdom of heaven is a reality. It has been birthed into existence. Now that it's here, its final consummation is inevitable. The kingdom is going to advance. It is unstoppable. And so we get into two final parables here. The parable of the sown seed and the parable of the mustard seed. Jesus begins by sharing with them the parable of the growing seed. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, The seed sprouts and grows, although he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Jesus gave the disciples a clear warning of what was going to come, of what it would mean to be a disciple, especially in the end times. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Jesus is telling the disciples, and he's telling us, we have to understand the true nature of the kingdom. The kingdom is here. It has arrived. Make no mistake about that. But before it reaches its final culmination, things are going to get rough. If you don't know how the kingdom operates, you're going to lose heart. You're going to look around and say, you know, where is this kingdom? Is God really in control? So Jesus is making several key points here. First, the kingdom is God's initiative. It's God at work in this world. Night and day, whether the farmer sleeps or gets up, all by itself, the soil produces grain. So the kingdom of heaven is not something that man establishes. It's not the result of our planning, of our initiative, of our actions. Man is involved. Man sows the seed. Man reaps the harvest. But make no mistake, the work here, the work involved in establishing and seeing the kingdom grow to fruition, this is entirely God. Secondly, the kingdom operates on God's principles and standards. It's set up to carry out His plans. His objectives, not ours. Uh, Jesus said, The seed sprouts and grows, although he, the farmer, does not know how. The workings of the kingdom aren't designed to fit into our human wisdom and logic. The kingdom operates on God's logic, God's thinking. It's designed in his way. And we often don't understand this, but we know that his ways are greater than ours. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Finally, Jesus wants them to understand the growth of the kingdom is inevitable because the kingdom contains within itself everything it needs to grow. It doesn't need man's effort. It doesn't need man's help. Just as the life of the plant is contained in that tiny seed, the full kingdom of heaven is contained in what Jesus has already instituted and put into place. And once planted, that seed will grow into the full mature plant. Once established through the birth, the death, the resurrection of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is going to grow until it reaches its full measure. Jesus is assuring the disciples, no matter what it looks like, The kingdom will grow, it will expand, it is unstoppable. The final result is inevitable. In John 17, Jesus prays for His disciples, knowing that He will soon leave them. In verse 11, He says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Jesus knows the disciples will need God's protection. He prays, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Then He prays, Sanctify them by the truth. Jesus knew that it was essential that the disciples have the truth and that having the truth would set them apart. It would sanctify them. It would keep them safe. And Jesus makes it plain. We today are included with His disciples in His prayer. In verse 20 He says, My prayer is not for them alone, I pray also for them who will believe in me through their message. When Jesus ascended into heaven, He left the church to be part of this world, beginning with the disciples and then continuing all the way down through the centuries to us who are living today. He left it to us to continue the work of the kingdom. The great temptation is for us to begin to assume that it is up to us. Whether the kingdom is successful or not will be a result of our efforts, our planning. But the temptation is to use earthly means, human strategies uh, to advance the kingdom. Jesus is telling the disciples and us, your job is not to grow the kingdom. Your job is not to make it happen. The kingdom is God's initiative. God is at work within it. The kingdom contains everything that it needs. Your job is to be faithful, to plant and then to reap and leave the rest up to God. You know, we often hear the message, don't give up. Things may look bad or they're discouraging, but if you are faithful, God will grant success. Success will come. Really, this is the wrong way of looking at things. We aren't faithful so that eventually we will be successful in building the kingdom. Jesus is teaching us Faithfulness doesn't lead to success. Faithfulness is the success. What God expects from us, what we are judged by, evaluated by, is not the results of the kingdom. We are evaluated by our faithfulness to the work that God himself is doing. Trevor Wax writes an internet blog, and he he quotes words of advice from an evangelical pastor in Romania. And this was a man who mentored younger pastors. And one day he told them, he said, Don't try to be successful. Expend your energy in being faithful. Faithfulness is success. And this is a message we really need to learn today. Now, Jesus follows the parable of the grown seed. He follows this up with the parable of the mustard plant. Again, he said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all the garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Now, Jesus is using something here that every one of his listeners would have been familiar with. It was the common mustard plant a plant that begins with one of the tiniest of seeds, but eventually grows into one of the largest of garden plants, so big that its branches overshadow everything else. Now, those who were listening to Jesus, they would have seen these plants. They would know exactly what Jesus was talking about. Now, the example probably, though, would have struck them as unusual. Jesus is talking here about Someone who deliberately plants a mustard seed and sees it grow. Mustard was an invasive species. Generally, it was something you wanted to keep out of your field, out of your garden. It's not something you would deliberately plant. Mustard was known for being invasive. Once it began growing, it quickly crowded everything else out. It outgrew everything else because it grew so profusely. It blocked the sunlight from the other plants in the garden. So, if you were a farmer trying to grow grain, you would weed out the mustard plant. You didn't want that in your field. Jesus is giving them a very striking, dramatic example. Something begins uh, with, with a, a, a seed that's so tiny, and yet, once it's taken root, it grows and grows until it pushes out everything else. And he tells them, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, we can look at the beginnings of the kingdom of heaven and think, this is nothing. It's tiny. It's insignificant. How can this be of any value? But once the kingdom is planted, once it's in place, it will eventually crowd out. It will push out everything else. We look at the world around us and see a world where Satan appears to be firmly in control. But Jesus is saying, God has planted a time bomb in Satan's field. God has established His kingdom. And although it's starting out tiny, it's starting out as barely noticeable. A minor problem that uh, for Satan and for the religious leaders of those days. But the end result is inevitable. The outcome is foreordained. It cannot be stopped. Like that tiny mustard seed, the mustard plant that results, the kingdom of God will grow and expand until it pushes out everything else. So, when we look around us today, we live in a world where the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is already here, but it's not yet here. It's here But the final culmination hasn't arrived. Now, John shows us what the kingdom of heaven will eventually be. In Revelation chapter 21, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Now, this is the future. It's not now. In this world, in this present day, Satan is still in control. We look around us and we agree with the psalmist as he wrote in Psalm 14. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There's no one who does good. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. We see the wicked flourishing, as we're reminded in Psalm 73. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their hearts comes iniquity. Their imaginations have no limit. They scoff. They speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. They say, how would God know? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. So we see a world in which the wicked do seem to be flourishing. So how do we reconcile the words of Jesus? The kingdom is here, and yet we see this fallen world around us. Jesus tells us, you face this by knowing the true reality of the kingdom. The reality that we saw presented in today's lesson. First, God intends for the kingdom to be for everyone. Jesus is the lamp put on a stand to light up everything that's dark and hidden. Secondly, the kingdom is God's initiative. It is God at work. We don't know how it works, We don't produce it through our own efforts. The kingdom contains in itself what it needs to grow. And finally, the growth of the kingdom is inevitable. Once planted, the tiniest of seeds will produce the final outcome, a kingdom where everything is placed under Christ's control, where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, our responsibility We are to hear with our ears. We're to let the light shine, to take full advantage of this light God has given us. Our role is to be faithful. Faithfulness is success. It's the only standard by which we are measured. The outcomes of the kingdom, those are in God's hands. We remain faithful and allow God to work. And finally, take hope. God has overcome the world, no matter what it looks like, Satan has lost. His kingdom is on the way out. God's kingdom is here to stay. Eventually, it will blossom and mature to the eternal glory of God. I want to close with the words of Jesus. And these are some of the final instructions He gives to His disciples before He faces the cross and the crucifixion. From John 16, Let these words speak to your heart. Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace in this world you will have trouble but take heart i have overcome the world let's pray dear heavenly father we thank you lord for this word that we've heard today about the true reality of the kingdom of heaven a kingdom that is here that is real right now and yet It's not yet. It's coming. But we know that what you have promised will be brought about. And our job is to be faithful to you. And help us to do that, Lord, throughout this next week in your name. Amen.